Hey, Robert. Hey, Ron. So artificial intelligence has been in the news again, uh, not necessarily for the positive right kind of reason. Um, uh, and that's this whole story with uh, OpenAI um, firing this CEO and founder um, and hiring somebody to replace him and then bringing him back and firing the board, placing the board. Um, and, and a lot of uh, kind of uh, talk about why that happened, a lot of fear. And, and it's interesting. A lot of it seems to be driven by uh, different groups in Silicon Valley having a, a, a different perspective on, on artificial intelligence. Uh, generally, uh, those who want to move forward and be aggressive and, and see where this takes us and how it can contribute to human life. And those who are very worried and, and would like to kind of apply the precautionary principle or at least partially apply it and, and step on the brake to, to slow down the development of AI. At least that's what it appears was behind the whole uh, OpenAI fiasco. Um, so how should we think from an ingenuous perspective? I mean, we're all for taking risks and for failure, but how should we think about it in the context of, um, of uh, artificial intelligence? I think that one thing that the OpenAI saga has um, shown a light on is that, you know, even though in here at Engineers, when we don't spend a lot of time focused on incentives, that incentives do matter. Uh, and it's embedded in having a supportive environment for exploration and discovery, which means, you know, providing the, the resources are available and the incentives are available for people to do that. Uh, but it's not really the main focus. Um, and here you can see how the wrong incentives can completely derail the exploration discovery process. And when I say the wrong incentives, I don't mean that in a judgmental absolute sense. I mean that different incentives have you decide to slam on the brakes of something that you know, seems to be moving very quickly and has a lot of upside potential because of a perceived downside risk versus the uh, assets the board uh, at OpenAI, and then the employees uh, have completely different incentives. You know, they they're the ones who are actually doing the work, who are applying their ingenuity, who are doing the the learning, uh, and of course have a, a financial upside that was very clear since the company was in the midst of. Uh, working out a tender offer that would allow employees to cash out on some of their work. So uh, it's very different incentives produce very different attitudes towards risk. And when you start trying to, to uh, tinker with that or to calibrate it, and, and you have an, you're imagining you can do it correctly, I think you end up with these widely disparate outcomes. And we've talked about this in other areas, like in crypto, how Bitcoin can be at 60,000 and, and at 10,000 the next day, virtually. And um, here it's, we're going to close down the effort, shutting down the company. is It's tragic, but it's also the best thing for humanity to, oh no, we're actually doing things the same way that we were when, you know, it was going to end the world last week. Now we're going to go ahead with that. 
So yeah, I mean, it, between the extremes. Yeah, I mean, OpenAI is this unique situation where they have very uh, kind of a hybrid governance structure, which is very unusual. I, I, I don't know that any other example of it in um, in technology, at least. And that is that the original OpenAI was founded as a non-for-profit, and uh, the board of it is a non-for-profit board. It owns no economic stake in the in in the company, uh, and it has an explicit mandate to make sure that AI is good for humanity in some broad sense, that everybody benefits from it, literally. That's in, in the charter and in the mission statement. And it's it's very broad. And of course, there are, no, there are no financial goals. There's no technology goals. It's just these very broad statements about not harming humanity and making sure that the benefits are distributed across all of humanity. But they could only go so far technology-wise with that model. They couldn't raise money, uh, not enough money to do what they wanted to do. So they had to create a for-profit subsidiary um, where that for-profit subsidiary raised the billions of dollars necessary from venture capitalists or Microsoft in order to do the work. But the for-profit subsidiary is owned or, or not owned so much as controlled by the nonprofit board. So even though investors gave them a lot of money, those investors gain no control, no access to uh, the guidance and the direction of uh, the company. This for-profit, non-for-profit board in which there were some Silicon Valley CEOs, but also some academics, again, guided by these very broad, uh, ambiguous uh, criteria, uh, determined things, and it, there was. It looks like they developed a conflict between um, and Sam Altman, who founded it and was the CEO, had no economic stake, uh, surprisingly, but loves this and is obviously motivated to do it. And as you said, they were going to give uh, employees an economic stake uh, through a tender offer or, or allow them to exit through a tender offer, but the board is above that and has no economics and uh, can control everything or it thinks it can control everything. It turned out it can't, right? It turned out that when it fired the CEO, there was a rebellion and it turned out it had a lot less power than it thought it did. Well, yeah, it depends on what you mean by control. Um, so, you know, this is in a, it, it is a very academic approach, right? You, you say, well, hypothetically, we want, some group that doesn't have a, a huge economic interest to have a kill switch. So if we suddenly realize that we're creating Skynet and it's going to destroy humanity, there's someone who can pull the plug. Yep. Because if you know there's people who have billions of dollars at stake, then you get all sorts of biases that get introduced. So we'll have this unbiased, clear thinking, um, fully informed board that will have their finger on the kill switch. And uh, you know, if inside of AI or nuclear power or weapons of mass destruction or sophisticated biotechnology, you know, if there's a, a real threat to humanity, if there are large catastrophic dangers, not small dangers that you have to just allow for when you're going to go through the iterative process of experimenting and learning and, and making progress, but something that's catastrophic could, let's say, wipe out mankind. You want to take that into consideration. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is that the board isn't informed uh, because nobody is. It's not a knock on the board, but nobody knows whether the current language models are uh, anywhere near being a threat to humanity. Uh, you know, we've talked about the difference between submarines and whales and you know, if you think that they're building a whale and it's going to go off and start doing what it wants, then you, I could see wanting to kill the effort. Uh, but if they're building a submarine and it's just a completely different animal, in quotes, but that serves a very specific purpose and is in a lot of ways much better, then you you don't want to give someone the the right to shut down the effort. And the control to kill open AI, it, you know, that, that was clearly there because there was a, a hot second where we thought open AI might just disappear. You know, they would, Altman was leaving, all the employees were going to leave. What did they have? They had some IP, but in a fast moving environment like this, you know, what you have today might, is cutting edge, but what it looks like next year is obsolete. And in two years, everyone's forgotten about it. So they couldn't kill the effort uh, because it was just going to go to Microsoft. And then, you know, if you're at OpenAI and you're concerned about the threat to humanity, and the alternative is, well, we give the people at OpenAI what they want, or we let them all go to Microsoft and work for Microsoft. I think it's a pretty clear choice. So you had control, but not of what you wanted to have control over. Yep. You had control mm-hmm. over what was going to happen at OpenAI, not whether it was going to happen at all. And I think that's always been the case. And to pretend otherwise is silly unless you're willing to go the extreme of saying, look, I know what the future brings and we're going to use nuclear weapons against data centers if we have to, because it's such a strong threat. You know, that that is that's untenable for me. You you can't give someone that kind of power because A, they don't know what the future is going to bring. None of us do. And B, even if they do know this time, giving them that kind of power is, is such has so much downside that I'd rather risk the AI than even a benevolent you know, person being in charge of things. Yeah, and the reality is that even if they could somehow shut down OpenAI, today the, the three, four competitors, at least on a global scale, there are probably many more than that. And in terms of applications, there are many, many more. So, I mean, there are a lot of people working on these issues. There's a lot of companies competing for this. Uh, the only way to shut it down is for the government to shut it down. And and then it'll be developed somewhere else. That is, even then, you're not literally shutting it down. You're just shutting down particular efforts. Um, so, no, this is, this is out a there. massive global police state. Yeah. Yep. The way technology, given Moore's law, the way technology progresses, you know, what is only possible with billions of dollars at OpenAI right now is going to be possible on your phone in 25 years. Yep. So this is, AI is going to continue. AI is not going away anytime soon. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of exciting prospects for what we could be using AI for. I mean, uh, We've talked in the past about having this uh, personal digital assistant that all you do is say, I want X, and the personal assistant only gets you. It figures out how to get X, knows what it means, and and provides you with alternatives and and makes choices for you and books you the flights, the hotels, the cars, and, uh, and, and the restaurants and everything else that you need. 
with uh, and, and it knows your taste. It knows what to do. It doesn't need constant input from you. Um, th that's the kind of world that this all is probably going to make possible. And yeah, we've been excited about this for 25 years and we've been waiting for 25. It's, it reminds me of solar power where, you know, it was always going to happen, but it never happened. And then all of a sudden it yeah. happened. Uh, and it does seem to be happening because while the, the you have basically two real areas where we've made a lot of progress in artificial intelligence. One is the generative AI, which takes the universe of content, whether it's um, pictures or text or... And then is able to distill out kind of, well, what would a human being respond to given this prompt? Mm -hmm. uh, and given you know, the massive amount of, of data, it turns out that, that the um, AIs are able to learn very generally how to do this. Now, you know, the, the chat bots are both amazing and ridiculous uh, in terms of what kind of outcomes they produce. There is a big, you know, there's a lot of excitement about the, the possible ability of, of uh, AI to start solving math problems um, that isn't just having the answers to all math problems in a database somewhere, but actually able to solve new math problems by looking at, well, what are the, what are the approaches that in the past have produced correct answers? Uh, that that's that will be cool, uh, and I'm sure for a lot of levels of math, it will happen. Um, and that 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 will be that is not something that has happened yet. Yep. But in much narrower, well-defined areas like playing chess or playing go or um, identifying tumors on a, a, a X-ray or some other kind of scan or facial recognition or things that are are very specific, but you can give the the training is very effective. That has happened, uh, and, and we made you know just absolutely incredible progress. And, and I don't see any reason why that won't happen for agents. You know, and maybe the travel agent is, is one of the first because there's a handful of things that you have to get right. So how do you figure out how to have the agent get you know the right flights, the right cars, the right layovers, the right hotels, the right uh, and, and you can imagine it not taking it that long. I mean, we all learn to do this ourselves. Like, how do yep. you plan a trip? And we've all screwed up and learned from that. Well, and we also have taught our assistants to do it for us. So, uh, you know, uh, our human assistants. So it's it's a learnable skill that, that in, in, in you can iterate to see. You can look at the past and see, okay, what, what airlines does he like to fly on? What times of day does he like to fly on? And things like that is is all something that's learnable fairly easily and there might be some screw-ups but that's how you really learn uh, and they're usually fixable um, you know it's not that you you're going to be able to necessarily at the beginning pay no attention to the plans and just go where you're told to uh, but eventually that that's kind of how it'll be uh, yep. but there there's behind that there's a really interesting question of okay what is the the agent actually doing is it going to and querying all of the airlines? Well, there's only probably three or four airlines for any given trip that you would want to query. Maybe you have your one you have status on, and then there are others that have nonstop direct flights. Uh, number of hotels in a particular geography, that, that's, a, that's a pretty manageable group. Number of car rental options. 
But when you start to get into much more interesting questions, like, okay, well, let's not make it a hotel. Let's make it a a hotel or an Airbnb or a VRBO or, you know, fill in the blank, whatever else, you know, you might have. Does it, is it querying all of these platforms? Or, but what is the use of, of a platform if you have a, a house in Puerto Rico and I'm looking to rent it for a month while you're off somewhere else, what do we need the platform for? If your AI and my AI can communicate directly, and there are ways to flag you know, what is available. So it's not my AI has to query 8 billion other AIs around the world, but I can very quickly refine down to who are people in Puerto Rico that have houses they rent out, that have you know, a 4.5 star rating or better. It would happen very quickly. And that, that to me is much more interesting because that's what really has an economic impact. I mean, it's not that uh, Airbnb charges an enormous amount, but it does charge a significant amount. And if you could stream, and that's for the friction, it's for the ability to find, and then the ability to book, and then the ability to um, safely transact, so to manage the payments. So the question is going to be how do how does my AI let your AI know that my apartment is available? Where are the ratings housed? Right now we know the ratings are housed on the on the uh, Airbnb website. So where is this rating? And and how do we? I mean, one of the things that the platforms give is a uh, an, a third party objective. Like I'm not rigging the ratings, right? But if it's my agent saying, "Hey, I'm a five star agent." I'm a five-star property. How, do, how does your agent know that, you know, he's not lying? Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of these kind of issues to be solved. And then the question is maybe the platforms still exist, but they serve a different function. Maybe they still exist, but they charge a lot less money. Um, and, uh, and But that whole thing needs to, needs to really evolve. And it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves and to what it evolves. Yeah, exactly. Because you could imagine the it ends up being that Airbnb can only take four percent of transactions instead of fifteen percent of tra transactions. Um, but you know, it could evolve in a lot of other ways as well. Um, and this is where you know that the use case for cryptocurrency becomes interesting, because one of the important but sort of in the background. Uh, ways that the platforms serve a very important purpose is to secure the transaction. Mm -hmm. So how do I know you have, you actually have a rental property? How do you know that I'm actually going to pay you? Well, if I pay you in advance, then I'm at risk. If I pay you afterwards, then you're at risk because I've already stayed and I might just say, forget it. And, and so all of those have to be solved. And of course you can solve them using the existing payment structure. I mean, you could just farm that out to Visa and MasterCard uh, to manage that. Um, but you could also solve it through a, a more, again, Visa and MasterCard don't charge that much, but a, a couple of 3% on yep. trillions of dollars of transactions and up adding up to a lot of friction, not as, as a percentage, but as in an aggregate dollar amounts. And so having AIs managing this, but managing it outside of the existing platforms, the payment platforms, the matching platforms, all of that is where you could get big 
dollar improvements in terms of how effective, how efficient the world runs. Yeah, and crypto would, you know, through smart contracts would basically take care of a lot of the, uh, maybe the rating, maybe the, the confidence in payments, all of that could maybe be done through some kind of smart contract mechanism through crypto. And that is the beauty of the way crypto has evolved, which is to have it be more transparent and with you know, the, the history available without it being centralized, because it's in the centralized part that you start to question whether things are real, because then you, know, you start to notice that all of the ratings are 4.5 or higher at a, on a five-point scale. And you know why is that? Well, you know, all of the guests have an incentive to try and get good ratings, and all the hosts have incentive to try and get good ratings. And so we just cut a deal. We'll both give ourselves five stars. Um, and in, in one instance, that doesn't affect the veracity of the ratings, but over time, they become less and less useful. So... I think that we may easily end up with just the existing platforms um, in conjunction with the AI assistant, but that the long-term solution is unlikely to, to be that because as you get more powerful assistants, they're going to be able to do more and more off-platform, which means you know either the platform margins get compressed a lot Mm -hmm. Or you get something completely new, and the completely new piece is the one that's more exciting. All right. The combination of AI and crypto, uh, two areas that are kind of at the cutting edge right now where there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of question marks, but super exciting about the future. A lot of potential. And you know, this gets back to the same question with you know, with AI, it, there is, I think. There's no way to know what the probability of catastrophic risk is, but you can imagine a scenario where there's catastrophic risk and many people have. Uh, with crypto, it's we seem to be going down the same rabbit hole though without there being catastrophic risk that yep. you know that we're slowly layering on the same regulations that have made most existing financial institutions far less innovative than they otherwise could be. Uh, in order to stop money from going to terrorists and to reduce money laundering. But it is exactly the same question. It's how much are you going to give up of the upside of a new technology in order to protect against known risks? Mm -hmm. With known risks, unless they're catastrophic, from an ingenuism perspective, the answer is we're not going to stop and, and give up the upside. We're going to just manage the known risks. Yep. With unknown risks like uh, AI, then we we're more sympathetic to the idea of okay, well let's not destroy the world. Uh, but when you look at the fact that the same kind of arguments we can't afford not to slow these things down because of these risks are used where they're clearly inappropriate from an ingenuism perspective it makes us less sympathetic to and a lot more skeptical of those same arguments being used in an area where the risks are unknown. So like in many parts of our lives, there is this battle between um, kind of those who want to move forward and, uh, and enhance human uh, well-being and, uh, and those who want to slow down and, and uh, shut down our, our freedoms. But I, I, you know, that's the, the innovators, the innovators seem to, 
win out in the end, even if it's a little slower than uh, than we would like it. But uh, let's hope they win out in this one. I'm kind of excited over the, for the next 20 years to see where all this, uh, what all this brings us. All right, Robert. Thank you. We'll see you uh, next week. Great to talk, Yaron. Take care.